Mark chapter 11, we're going to read verse 12 through the end of the chapter, verse 33. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who, uh, those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking to destroy a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And and they discussed discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But we shall say, From man? They were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. God, this morning as we peer into your word, I pray that we would hear it in the way that you would desire that we hear it this morning. Because I believe that it has a message and that your Holy Spirit desires to speak to our hearts in such a way that this morning it requires us to place our faith in you. And so, Lord, as we come to this text and some of the heavier things that Jesus is speaking of, Lord, I pray that you would bring hope to our hearts, but also that, God, we might hear your word for what it is, and that we might heed the warning 
of Jesus' words this morning. So, Lord, we pray for your insight. We pray for your wisdom. And we thank you for the spirit that gives that wisdom, that we might hear your word, that we might know you, and that we might be a transformed people as a result of the work that you do through faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, we saw uh, the text that Colton led us through, verses 1 through 11. And uh, we saw Jesus entering Jerusalem on what was Sunday, with it, which is the 10th month of Nisan. Or Nisan, I don't know how to say if it's like the car or the other way. I suppose if you're Hebrew, it would make a difference to you, but to me it doesn't. So on the 10th, month, on the 10th day of, of Nisan... Um, that was specific, uh, or that was special, because at this time, Jesus had entered into Jerusalem around the time of Passover. And as Colton said last week, that was Lamb Selection Day. And so he came, uh, he came in what seemed like a, a nationalistic reception as a long-awaited Messiah King. And he came riding in on a colt with a great procession and fulfilling prophecies of a king who would enter from the east into the city, into the temple, and the glory of the Lord would be manifested, and they were praising him as the king from the line of David. And so when it was all over and done with, at the end of the event of that day, what does Jesus do? We look back in verse 11, which we didn't read this morning. We see as he entered Jerusalem... And he went into the temple that day. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, Bethany was only about two miles away. And so it seems uh, like there's this great parade and this reception of who Jesus is. And then the day seems to end rather anticlimactic with Jesus Walking into the temple, looking around, and, oh, I'm tired, I'll just go back to Bethany. Short walk. But um, I don't think Jesus was tired there, and I don't think that um, that was an accident either. He walked in, and he was looking, and he was looking for something. And so, instead, if we see verse 11 as the end of this procession, and view it more as Jesus doing a little bit of reconnaissance. And so on the next day, what you see is that Jesus actually is planning the events for the next day that we just read. He's walked into the temple to assess and see what's there. And so um, Jesus is intentionally scoping out with his divine scrutiny to see what needs to be done the next day when he returns. And all that unfolds in between this chapter, chapter 11, and chapter 13 takes place all within the context of the temple. And so it begins right here in this text that we look at today with the cleansing of the temple, and then it ends with a prophecy in chapter 13 of Jesus prophesying the destruction of the very temple that he's cleansing. And so, um, 
we see in verse 21, if you look at verse 21, Peter says, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered. And then in verse 13, chapter 1, I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 1, we see the disciples are saying, look, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And so Jesus' reply is, do you see all these things? Or so do you see all these great buildings? There will not be one left, I'm sorry, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, these events establish a context for a prophecy spoken by Jesus of the judgment that was coming. And so, this is kind of the framework uh, that gives us insight into what Jesus is doing here in these texts and how Mark perceives the miracle of the fig tree. And so, as we come to this text this morning, um, I think we need to keep in mind this framework. And, and so we can uh, consider the meaning of the miracle of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, and why Jesus is moved the way he was in the temple, and what he was communicating about his purpose and his identity. And so, in verse, chap- uh, sorry, uh, in verse 12 through 14... It says, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So when he says on the next day, this would have been Monday now, Sunday was the day before he rides in on the colt. And so uh, what happens is the real action begins now. Jesus walked into the temple, but he left and went to, to sleep with the 12 and then headed back in the morning, likely at around 6 a.m. in the morning. So we know it was the morning because Matthew 21, verse 8, says, Matthew says it was in the morning. And so Jesus is acting out deliberately for his disciples here in verse 14. Um, and... What we find here is that Jesus was speaking into existence. He was, he was not telling a parable. He was actually giving a living parable. And this is another, this section of text is actually another one of Mark's structures that Colton mentioned at the very beginning of the book of Mark. And we've seen a few of them now. And it's a Markin. We got one thing, an A, a B, and a, another A. Y'all remember what he called that? A sandwich, right? A Markin sandwich, right? So here we've got a fig tree with no figs, and it's a fruitless sandwich, so you get nothing on it, um, and it's not even as good as a fig newton. So, um, so Jesus here is actually not telling a parable. We have this Markin sandwich, and we, we, we find as we, we have a tree, he finds a tree, he curses it, he goes to the temple, he cleanses it, he revisits the fig tree. And so the story of this fig tree is a living parable. And what's going on, or what it's showing is what Jesus is going to do in the temple the very next day. He isn't randomly pointing his finger and he's just zapping trees and, you know, if he's just hungry, oh, that one doesn't have anything. <laughs> and, oh, <laughs> you'll never eat those again. Hope you didn't like apples. Uh, no, he's very intentional about what he has done because what we see is uh, the fig tree is actually a very familiar 
image throughout the Old Testament. It was used as a metaphor for the state of Israel, for its health, its spiritual vitality. And so uh, fruitlessness is a sign of, or sorry, fruitfulness in a fig tree or a vine is a sign of blessedness from God. And fruitlessness is a sign of being under the curse. And so we see there's several texts. I'm sorry, I don't have them up for you today. I've just got our main text up. So you, if you want to write these down throughout the uh, sermon, I would just recommend you jot them on the side. You can go look them up later and I'll read them. And so we see this actually in Jeremiah 8.13, where Jeremiah says, when I would gather, or the word of the Lord, he says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away. Uh, We see it again in Hosea 2, verse 12. And I lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And so, uh, we also see it again in Hosea 9, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, like the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the things they loved. And so we see Jesus cursing this fig tree to show that the temple and all of Israel is about to be judged. And why? It's about to be judged for the same reason that Jesus curses the fig tree, for its fruitlessness. It promises fruit, but it has none. It looks good, but it doesn't satisfy. Promises one thing on the outside, but isn't delivering what it's promising. It's all foliage. And so Jesus approaching the fig tree with a desire and with a hunger to be satisfied, approaches finding nothing, and he curses the fig tree. And so Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, desiring to see something. He's desiring to see fruit. And I think we, we can fall into this temptation. We, we're looking at Israel today and Jesus' cleansing of the temple, but I think this also is something that we struggle with on a personal level, maybe even on a corporate level. Um, I think we fall into this temptation. We, we may look like we have signs of life on the outside, but really on the inside, there's no fruit. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, or if you find yourself like that this morning. And so I, I think what we see from this passage, and we're going to see in the, in the text in a minute, is that, that there are actually things that Jesus does Hate. This is the one miracle of Jesus where rather than healing something, his miracle brings about destruction. And so there's something very unique about this miracle that is communicating something about who Jesus is and about the nation of Israel, about the state of the temple and its worship, about its leaders and about the people of Israel. 
And what is that question? We're going to continue to um, ponder that. And so when we think about the temple, I think what we can say, we could say that Jesus hates religion when it promises life, but it's actually dead and it's unfruitful. There's nothing wrong with religion because in James, actually, uh, religious has the word religion has some connotations to it. Some people like them, some people don't. But um, about three, four hundred years ago, religion was not a bad word. Today, it's a bad word. Don't say religion around me. I don't want to hear that word. Some people think of themselves as spiritual, and they'll say, "Well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious." And other people think of themselves as religious in nature, and and Maybe they are holding on to traditions and making that the object of their faith. And so James actually talks about religion. There's nothing wrong with religion because he, um, if religion is fruitful, um, then that's good. But James says there's a kind of religion that's pure and spotless. And in James 1.27, he says, Religion that is pure and spotless and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affection and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so that's great. That's, that's what good religion is. But he also goes and he talks about religion that's not good. He said, if anyone thinks he is religious and he doesn't bridle his tongue, but he deceives his own heart, this person's, religious is, this person's religion is worthless. In other words, your religion's worthless if you're going around burning down force with your tongue, with fire, and lighting people's lives aflame. And so there is a religion that is good. So I think we just suspend the negative connotations about the word religion and realize that, that really that Scripture doesn't just give this nebulous idea of being spiritual. And that's why Jesus said, if you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments, right? So, so at, um, the point of this is, is that sometimes um, I think we find ourselves in the midst of a struggle where we, like the fig tree, are fruitless. We're promised one thing, or we promise one thing, and yet we find ourselves fruitless. And so, you know, oftentimes I think in the church we have these waves of measuring fruitlessness, and, and I just, Jesus just doesn't judge things the way that we do. He doesn't see things the way we do. You know, Jesus isn't impressed with... Um, he isn't impressed with how often I uh, am on the worship team each Sunday. Um, he's not impressed with how much I give for my tithing. He's not impressed with um, if the sanctuary seats are filled or if they're empty. He's not impressed whether I ironed my shirt this morning, which I obviously didn't. If you have a shirt on that's nicer than me, then I don't think Jesus is impressed with that either. <laughs> he likes my shirt just as much as yours. But... Um, I think we fall in this temptation of, of finding things in our life. We're prone to look for things that are signs of fruit when 
In reality, Jesus doesn't see any of that the way that we do. And he said to the Pharisees, he said, you're whitewashed tombs. You look wonderful on the outside, but on the the inside, you're dead. And so, if you're in here and you read all the right books and you've got all the right looks, then it really doesn't matter if you've got it all together, if there's life with no fruit. And so, I just want to begin to think about the fig tree and bearing fruit and Israel bearing fruit or us bearing fruit, what, what we got to ask, well, what does Jesus mean by fruit? And at the end of verse 23, I think we get really a clue to that answer in this text. So if you look, there's a few things that he mentions. He mentions faith. He says, have faith. And he mentions prayer. And then he mentions forgiveness. And so those are some of the evidences of fruit. And so Um, He's not interested if we showed up this morning or if we attend regularly. Um, And so Jesus is concerned with eternal matters. Do you know him? Is he your treasure? Do you cherish and desire him above all else? And so when people are around you, what are they getting a taste of? Or when they get a bite out of your life, what is it they're tasting? Are they, uh, are they tasting selfishness, unforgiveness, bitterness, sexual immorality, anger, jealousy, covetousness, or do they taste fruit? Do they taste forgiveness and gentleness and humility and see self-control? And see words that speak life and grace. And so, um, when Jesus comes to us and approaches us, um, Jesus is not just a connoisseur of fruit. He created fruit. And Jesus knows a phony when he tastes it. And so, when Jesus comes to our tree and picks something off, he knows what he gets. And when he came to the temple, he knows what's there. And in fact, we get a little glimpse of what it was that Jesus did see, not in this gospel, but in, if you have your Bible, you can turn there, or you write this in the notes, you see this in Luke 19, verse 41 through 44. And we get a little glimpse of the cry of Jesus. And this is actually right before the triumphal entry from last week. And then what what we see is Jesus moved to the point of tears. And he's weeping. And he's looking over Jerusalem. And he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
Jesus said, you did not come to me. And he weeps over the city, foreseeing its destruction. We see the same thing, or something very similar in Matthew 23, verse 37 through 39, where Jesus laments over the city, and he says, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What moves Jesus to feel this way? And what is it that Jesus is desiring to find when he comes to the temple? He's desiring faith. What does he find when he comes to the temple? Unbelief. And so in Mark 15 through 19, we see Jesus enters the temple. And what happens is Jesus begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. That, that word actually anything is translated someplace as merchandise. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And actually that word's plural. You all have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And and when evening came, he went out of the city. So, What's going on here? Jesus walks into the temple. He's flipping over tables, knocking over chairs. And John even says in John 2 that he gets out a whip, a cord of whips, and he starts to drive people out. Doesn't say he actually flogs the people, but he is driving them out. And he drives out the sheep and oxen with them. I mean, can you imagine if somebody just came in here and started flipping over your Bible and dumping out your wallet and knocking over the tithing table out there? Can you imagine what a scene it would be? And so, um, Jesus, it looks like, at first appearance, is he just throwing a temper tantrum? Is he just upset? He was hungry and he didn't get something to eat for breakfast this morning and cursed the fig tree and came in a bad mood. Well, that's not what's going on here. Um, Through the temple, though the temple may not seem uh, like much to us as Texans, Uh, Mark was actually written for the first century. So uh, I think it's just really hard to understand what the importance of the temple was to the Jewish community, to Israel. In fact, I don't think we can even overestimate it. We can't exaggerate it enough, the the significance of it to the nation. And we, we really don't, in America, I don't think we have anything to compare it to. Maybe if you are from the country of Texas, it would be like having the Cowboys Stadium, um, around the Capitol building with six flags rides everywhere, and then, you know, like the largest church in the state gathering for a worship event. That, I mean, that's not even close to the significance because the temple meant everything to the Jews. It was the heart of Israel's religious life. 
It was the symbol of their national identity. Its political center, it was their political center, and it took the national, sorry, the, uh, they took national pride in the temple building itself, and it was a symbol of their resistance against the Roman oppression. It's where their sacrifices took place. It's where, um, it's where the focal point of their pilgrimage, their pilgrimages were. And so we really just don't have anything like it. And Jesus, when Jesus confronts the leaders of the day with the issues of worship and religion, the people recognized the monumental nature of Jesus' accusations against them. And so if we go back to the history of the temple, the first temple was built by Solomon. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. Um, It was rebuilt by Zerubbabel. And then uh, along came Herod just before Jesus' time. And and Herod improved upon the temple and actually added this place called the Court of the Gentiles. And um, if you were to walk up to the the Court of the Gentiles, actually just the temple, it's huge. It was one of the biggest structures in the, the world at that time. In fact, just the court, this place called the Court of the Gentiles, let me give you a little background on it. The Court of the Gentiles um, was, well, well, first of all, let, let, me, let me see. Um, there, hopefully I'm not going to repeat myself. The, you have different parts of the temple, but the most outer part of the temple premises was called the Court of the Gentiles. And it was 500 feet long by 325 feet wide. It was five football fields long and three football fields across. It was approximately 35 acres. This just for the Gentiles to gather. And it had its name because that was the closest that the Gentiles and non-Jew could go to the temple. And so then if you keep drawing these concentric circles then you have the next closest place and group that could go is the court of the women. There's a place for the women. Then there was a place for the men a little closer to the temple. And then you have the, uh, there's a place for the priests. They actually have the temple itself. And then within the temple, you had one place. Well, within the temple, you have the holy, uh, sorry, the holy place, which is where the priests would gather. And then within that room, you have the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could gather. And so what had happened was this courtyard where the, the non-Jews, the nations, were supposed to gather, it had become a marketplace where they were selling sheep and dove and cattle and the temple sacrifices. And so at Pentecost, once a year, people would come and they'd take a pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem and um, from wherever they were, and they would come to sacrifice. And rather than traveling with an animal, which was, was uh, probably difficult, um, it would be more convenient to, to buy an animal rather than to take one and risk the, taking it all that distance only for the high priest to inspect it and say, oh, well, this one's not spotless. It's got a blemish on it. You can't use it, so you've drug it all that way for nothing. So they would just buy one. And so many scholars think that the, uh, the sellers that sold the animal and livestock for sacrifices actually were um, connected or belonged to the priestly hierarchy and that they paid possibly a large fee to the temple authorities. So the authorities themselves making money on this. And on top of that, um, you have 
exchange and taxes. So um, if you were a traveler, you had to exchange your money. So if you were Greek or Roman, you needed to transfer into the temple currency so that you could pay the money for, uh, you, I'm sorry, you would, you would have to go to the money changers, you'd change out your currency, and they would charge you a, a fee of anywhere from 10 to 12%. And then on top of that, every Jewish male who was over 20 years and older, they also had to pay a temple tax each year, one time a year, half shekel. So they would exchange their money on the exchange rate. And if you know how exchange rates work, you are, you're going to get less money back than you put in, right? Um, so there's kind of these inflated uh, prices working against people who would come to the temple to buy and to pay their taxes and use them, the exchange system. So... Um, uh, now, just to give you an idea of how much money and commerce was moving through here, the ancient historian Josephus tells us that there were 3 million Jews at Passover on 65 AD. 3 million Jews came to Passover. Um, and between somewhere, one of the years between 60, around 66 or 67 AD, um, there were 256,000 Paschal lambs that were killed in the temple for Passover once a year, or one year. So this is big business for the chief priests. And so if you can imagine the sights, the smells, the commotion, the market, the exchange of money, and all the chaos on the floor of a financial stock exchange and on top of that, you got like a, a, a stock market with live animals and the sense and feel of it all. And that's the place where the nations were to come to seek the living God. And so Jesus says, He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, I think there was some things going on here because what was going on was that, yes, people who came to buy sacrifices and exchange money, there was some injustice going on. And so I think Jesus, seeing the injustice, is that, the way, is that why he responded the way he did and he, he drove everybody out? Well, I think maybe that's part of it. In fact, in Zechariah 14, which I believe we read some of uh, Zechariah 14 last, last week, Zechariah 14, 20, verse 21, there's actually a verse and it says, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. In other words, when the glory of the Lord enters the temple, there will be no traitor. Not T-R, not T-R-A-I-T-E-R, not traitor, a betrayer, but traitor as in one who is a merchant. And so the Messiah, it's prophesied, was going to rid the house of traitors. And the temple's purpose was not to be a stock market, but a holy place. Prayer, solemn prayer, where you could meet with God. And so that's why Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, My house shall be a house of prayer for all. 
people. If you think of where they were, this was the closest place where the Gentiles could come to the living God. And so I think another thing that we see here is, um, if you notice, uh, Jesus seems to be responding to something that, well, I think also in our culture that we should caution ourselves about. Because um, it says that he kept anybody from passing through the temple courts with any merchandise. Uh, Some translations say merchandise. Some say, what does our text here say? Y'all can help me out. With anything, right? Uh, When he came to it, he found, oh, no, I'm sorry, wrong text. Um, Oh, verse uh, verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So, why would he not allow anybody to carry anything through the temple? He's come to the temple. Here's the place where the Gentiles are supposed to gather. And you've got people buying, exchanging money. So not only did he drive them out, but then he wouldn't let anybody come in and carry anything through the temple. Well, you've got to ask the question, why is Jesus doing this? Because, I mean, if he was reacting to the injustice that was in uh, the extortion that was happening and, and all the money-making and the economic system that had been developed and the corruption... Well, then why was he stopping the people passing through the temple courts? Well, I think there's something else going on here. So it's not just that Jesus is uh, zealous um, because they, the, the people who are, are buying sacrifices, were treated unjustly. He is stopping people from carrying anything through. What's happening is Jesus is actually bringing an entire halt to the whole system. So you can imagine that there were around 250,000 sacrifices that took place around that time. Then Jesus is causing a huge disruption. He is definitely on the radar. And so um, he's not just having a, a temper tantrum, a rage, a fit of rage. He was premeditated. And he is purposefully and he's publicly disrupting this whole system. And he's doing it where everybody can see and hear him. And that's why in verse 18 it says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And in verse 14 he's doing this for the disciples. He, with the fig tree and the disciples, heard it. It was for them. And so he wants them to notice He's no longer hiding about what he's come to do. And so, I think when we look at what was going on in the temple, and I think specifically with Israel at this time, you see something similar in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 11 where the people of the day were living unrighteously in the eyes of the Lord. And it says that they continued to put their trust in something. It was like a mantra. They would say it over and over. They would say, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from, I'm sorry, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates and worship the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner and the fatherless or the widow or shed, the in, shed innocent blood in, the, in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave you of old to your fathers forever. And so I think we see this same kind of trust in the system and in the temple, the the temple has become so important to the nation of Israel that it is itself an object of worship. And so Jesus comes to Israel to find fruit. And if you think of the purpose of the temple all along, where the first temple was in the garden, the sanctuary, where God walked among Adam and Eve. And then because of sin, there was a brokenness in the fellowship. And then they were uh, expelled from the garden. And there was a flaming sword that was put and they were not able to enter again. And then so God permits his, his presence to be uh, manifested in this little thing called a tabernacle, tabernacle which was, which was a, a portable temple that could travel with the Israelites after their um, uh, their. Uh, exodus from Egypt. And so then you have Solomon come along and then Solomon, actually David, David desires to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord says, I haven't dwelt in a building since you, since Israel. And so David dreams of building one, but because he's a man of war and has so much bloodshed and the sight of the Lord, he's not able to build it. So he collects and he instructs Solomon and funds the building of the the temple, and Solomon executes the the building of the temple. And so then the temple becomes the place where the glory of God is manifested over the Ark of the Covenant. And it really, the sacrificial system that's going on and the temple itself all pointed towards one thing. So for 1,500 years, the sacrifices were pointing to this moment when Jesus would walk into the temple and the glory of the Lord would fill the temple. And the response was unbelief, fruitlessness, a fruitless faith. Jesus wants them to trust in God. We see that from his weeping in Luke 17. And so, I think the question to ask ourselves this morning um, is, what am I trusting in when I think about the Jewish nation and their trust in the temple? Am I... What is my assurance in it? Because if my assurance is in anything other than Jesus, and if my faith is anything in anything other, and I think I have right standing before God because of anything other than Jesus, then it's really 
a lie. It's the lie. If I think I'm right with God because I come here every Sunday morning, or because I raised my hands in worship, or because I listened to the right songs, or because I brought my Bible this morning, uh, if I think I, God is pleased with me because I serve in the kids' ministry, or because I voted for the right presidential candidate, or I didn't kill anybody, um, well, well, the reality is that if, if we believe that God's pleasure towards us comes from anything other than Jesus, that is a false religion. And so Jesus' payment of his life is the only thing that makes you and I acceptable in our standing before God. And anything else is a deception. So in verse 20 through 25, as they're coming back, or as they pass by in the morning, sorry, as they pass by in the morning, they saw again the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to them, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you, you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass and it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it'll be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And so Jesus' response after going into the temple and seeing faithlessness, driving out the money the exchangers and, and shutting down the whole temple sacrificial system, at least temporarily, uh, they're walking back. They see this fig tree. And then once they see it, Peter says, look, Rabbi, uh, the tree you cursed, it's, all, it's withered all the way to its roots. And so what does the cursing of the fig tree have to do with faith? Because Jesus' response to that is, have faith in God. So how do we get from the disciples saying, well, look, look, look at the uh, fig tree. It's withered away to Jesus saying, have faith. Well, Matthew actually helps us out a little bit in his account in, verse, in Matthew 21, verses 20 through 22. It says, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And so Jesus is responding with his desire that he wants us to trust in God and not in traditions, not in systems of religion, but in him. And that's why... As they're walking, Peter saw, and it says he remembered. And so then Jesus responds, have faith in God, and you can move mountains. Now, the statement, um, if you say to this mountain, um, that doesn't, I think we need to talk about that for a minute, because he's not, he's not saying that, I mean, if we take it at its literal sense, then, then we can pray in here, and we're going to, we can take one of these chairs and, like, Luke Skywalker 
throw it into the wall or something, right? So Jesus is not really being literal here. It's actually a proverbial statement. And so you know, Jesus is not saying that, well, if I, um, if I pray and, um, and I, I ask for a job, I'm going to get the job that I want. Or if um, I want to win the lottery, then I can ask for that. Or he's not saying, you know, the disciples, well, you want that nice chariot over there? Yeah, just pray for that one and ask it. You'll get it. You just got to believe it. If you have enough faith, you know, the quality of faith, then you're going to get it. And so Jesus is not saying that at all. Um, he didn't mean it literal. And it doesn't mean that if you have enough faith or authentic faith that God's going to answer your prayer. We have to take this really into the context of the rest of the scripture, and especially um, when when we look at Jesus' prayer where he says, Father, take this cup from me. And the answer is what? No. No. So what is Jesus? So we got to keep in mind other uh, passages about prayer. Jesus, and so that we understand what Jesus was expecting his disciples to pray for when he says, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it'll happen. So, um, when you think of the things that Jesus was teaching his disciples, it wasn't just a prayer for small things. Jesus was saying, he was saying, pray audaciously. Pray for things bigger than your imagination. And if you pray for the Messiah's reign and rule, then it's going to happen. And if you pray for the kingdom of God to come, you're going to see it. And so the imagery of this mountain also, not only is Jesus saying that, that if you pray these kinds of things, and that you believe that what you have asked for in prayer, you'll receive it, then, then you'll move mountains. Well, he, there's also some other imagery attacked, attached to this. In Zechariah 14, we see the imagery of a mountain, and what, what it speaks of is actually speaks of the land there at the Mount of Olives, and it says the whole land is going to be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. And this is actually a part of the Messianic prophecy that when the Messiah arrived, mountains would be leveled and valleys would be raised up and lowlands raised up and that the whole land would become a flat plain. And so if you believe and pray, the mountains will be moved. Just try it. If you pray that this temple will be torn down and raised up in three days and believe it, it'll be yours. So Jesus is telling us to pray audaciously. And the last thing we see here in this text is where the next day they depart again and then they come back to Jerusalem and Jesus um, is walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And actually, this is the first time in Mark where those three are mentioned together. And, and they ask him a question. By what authority 
are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do them? And if you notice, in, uh, they're, they're really just recovering from the shock of the previous day when Jesus cleared out the temple, shut down the sacrifice. And, and so they're finally confronting Jesus. And they didn't, um, they didn't question him the day before. And they don't even question, actually, they don't, they don't question his actions. They don't question about what he did. They just ask him, who gave you the authority to do those things? And so, in usual fashion, Jesus answered the question by asking them a question. Well, I'll ask you a question. Was, was, John, was the um, baptism of John from heaven or man? So he only gives them two alternatives to judge the authenticity of John's authority. Was it God or was it man's? And so Jesus is actually forcing them as priests to carry out their priestly roles as religious guides, and he's doing it so they go on public record. And so Jesus was so closely aligned with John the Baptist that if they affirmed John as the prophet of God, then they would, by implication, be affirming Jesus and all his teachings. And they didn't want to do that. So they denied John. Uh, if they denied John, they meant, that meant they were going to disenfranchise everybody who thought that John was a prophet. And so they, it says they were, in verse 32, they were afraid of the people. Therefore, they held that, uh, for they held that John really was a prophet. And so they didn't have the courage to answer honestly. So they just said, we don't know. We don't know. And it's actually, uh, Jesus, um, these moments where Jesus, uh, especially in John, where he's, in John chapter 2, where he's driving out the um, animals and, and driving people out, uh, and he says, um, um, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. When he says that, uh, what happens is those accusations or th- those words of Jesus come up later when he's before the council and the high priest. And so this moment is actually just catap- uh, catapulting Jesus towards the cross. It's expediting his crucifixion because Jesus' actions present a direct challenge to the temple authority and even the high priest himself. Because there was three, I think there's really three things, three statements that Jesus is making about himself in these passages. One, we see that Jesus enters Jerusalem on a colt, and so he's hailed by people as the, the Messiah King on Lamb Selection Day, on the 10th of Nisan, and he's as if he's saying, I am the Lamb of God that can take away the sins of the world, sacrifice me. So Colton said that last week. And so as the Lamb, chosen for his sacrifice in in the custom of Passover, they were to take that lamb, and for four days, um, they were to take that sacrifice and tie it up so that it could be inspected by the priests and the people so that they could observe its perfection and its unblemished quality. And Jesus actually, during these four days of, of, of coming in as on the, on the day of the lamb, uh, sorry, the, um, the Passover selection. Uh, lamb selection day, comes to the temple for four days until the day of Passover so that his perfection 
his beauty would be on display before the people and before the high priests. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he curses a fig tree on the way. And he's actually saying that he is doing away with the temple, not just the sacrifice, but the temple itself. He's making a statement about the temple. And we know this because the accusations made of Jesus against Jesus later in Mark 14:58, which were before the high priest and the elders. And one of the witnesses says, we heard him say, I'll, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. So Jesus is saying, I have come to abolish and obliterate the temple. It is obsolete. You don't need it anymore. The glory of the Lord is here. And so he wasn't just cleansing the temple. Jesus was clearing it out. He was bringing an end to the temple, an end to the sacrifice. He wasn't refurbishing it. He wasn't doing a a building refurbish. He wasn't reforming and changing the worship. He was dismantling the entire thing, the entire system. And like the fig tree, it would be withered away to its roots. And in 70 AD, it would be destroyed. And so in Mark 13, 2, Jesus says, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left. Uh, there will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And Jesus says, I'm making a temple not made with hands. And so that's why the chief priests and the scribes and the elders hated Jesus. Jesus wasn't open-minded and tolerant of their worship. Um, They became indignant because he was saying he was going to destroy it and he would raise up a temple in three days. And if you want to translate that, he's saying the Romans are going to march into 70 AD. They're going to wipe it to the ground. They're going to burn it down. And then he was telling his disciples, you don't need it anymore because I'll rise from the dead. And on the third day, I'm going to be the only temple that you need. And so Jesus' zeal displayed in this passage is a reminder that he hates any religion that does not have him at the center. And he's come, um, he's come to give Israel a new heart. And so this is not, the temple's not the center anymore. It's not everything. It's not where you come to sacrifice anymore. It's not where the glory of God is going to dwell above the ark. You don't need the temple. He's saying, you need me and you are going to be my living stones built up into the fullness of God to dwell in. All your faith centers not on the temple, but on me. And so one other thing that I think we see in this passage about Jesus' declaration of himself is he's the Passover lamb. He's going to rebuild a new temple made of living stones. And he himself will be that temple. And also, he's also make, um, well, um, let me just back up here. Um, the, 
the role of the high priest, which he would have interacted with during, during these times, very likely, um, a high priest's role was that he was to be the holy representative of the people of Israel before the Lord. Um, he was in charge of the, the temple sacrifice and the offering at the offerings at the place of worship, and especially in the temple. Um, and that included also instructing the people. And so a chief priest served for life. It was a life term. It was also um, the high priest was uh, required a special degree of holiness of them so that they would ad- avoid defilement and contact. But, but the reality is that when Jesus comes in, to start to change the temple sacrifice, he's making a declaration. That declaration is, I have authority to change the worship here. I am the high priest. And so, the chief priest and the high priest and the elders, they become indignant and they seek a way to destroy him. But, Jesus is the great high priest. And so in Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, it says, And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ is offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single Offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So the question I would ask that we would leave here this morning is, um, when we look at the fig tree and fruitfulness, and we consider uh, both as a, as a church and in our personal lives, uh, are we full of foliage? Or are we bearing fruit? Am I like the fig tree that just has no fruit? Am I promising something on the outside? With nothing on the inside. With fruitlessness. Um, is my religion about Jesus? Is he, the, is he the one that I cherish, that I desire? Or is my religion about something else? Because Jesus wants to drive that out.